Good morning. How about you open your Bibles to Psalm 14? Psalm 14. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we will get you one. And as always, if you don't have a Bible at all, you can have the Bible that we give you. And if you like Elijah's Bible, you can just go get his. He'll give it to you. <laughs> Psalm 14. All right, so we're going to start. We started last week. Uh, we're doing a um, Doctrines of Grace series, also known as Calvinism. Um, we started last week with the sovereignty of God just to lay a foundation to show that we're not just pulling this stuff out of thin air, that the doctrines of grace absolutely flow from the very character of God. And I'm not going to rehash everything, but it's important to lay that foundation. Because again, if you decide who God is based on what he does, you can get some, some weird, you can come to some weird conclusions about actually who God is. And actually more importantly, more prevalent than that is you you will say the same words um, about who God is, but you won't have even the right definitions, which is why everybody would declare that God is sovereign. Um, but then you find out that there's a couple camps out there that their definition of sovereign, uh, one has a right understanding of what sovereign actually means, and one group, one, one camp doesn't. Um, so it's important to to lay a solid foundation of theology proper, the doctrine of God, however you want to call it, the attributes of God, before you start getting in to, to what he does. And actually, one of my favorite theologians, his name is uh, Carl Truman, he, he declares and thinks that that is, is perhaps the, um, the maybe one of the most, the greatest pitfalls in the church in America is that Sunday to Sunday to Sunday, you kind of have two things going on primarily, which is what God does um, and then what we do. Um, and it's a lot of preaching and teaching is, is kind of void of actually who, who God is. And so we, we kind of can get, uh, we can kind of just get messed up when we forget that the most important thing is what do you think of when you think of God? How, who is God? What is God? Um, and so that's why we laid that foundation. So now we're going to start, um, though, we're going to go through, we're just going to go through Tulip. I kind of rename them all, uh, maybe all of them. Yeah, I do. Um, and so uh, total depravity is where we're going to be today, uh, which again, uh, radical depravity is probably a better, a better phrasing than that. And I'm going to do it, though, through Psalm 14, okay? So Psalm 14, the word of the Lord. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord. Then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Lord, thank you for your word. 
Lord, thank you for truth. Help us to see truth for what it is. Help us to see the beauty of truth, um, the beauty that it sets us free. And as we continually get our minds renewed by your spirit through your word, our, our minds are, are we're continually then set free. As we are renewed, we're just continually just free from set free from bondage and sin and temptation and free to love and obey you and love others. And Lord, I just pray Lord, today that we would just receive your word, that we would receive, that we would trust your word, that we would allow your word to correct our own thinking and our contradictions, Lord, um, that we would just trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, total depravity in the grace of God towards sinners. Now, these are going to overlap with the other doctrines of grace because I'm, I didn't want to come up here and just tell you all about the pitiful situation that we all find ourselves in um, and then say bye, okay, uh, and then sit on that for a week and then, then talk about the grace of God next week because these are the doctrines of grace, okay, and the doctrines of grace, are, are they're, they're, they're beautiful, um, and that's what I will, there'll be some apologetic stuff um, coming from me um, not necessarily um, on purpose, because um, I'm really just wanting to highlight the beauty of, of th these truths. I don't want to do it from necessarily an apologetic uh, foundation. Um, I want us to just see how glorious God's grace is, all right? Um, there are a lot of churches that hold to the doctrines of grace, uh, Calvinism, okay? Calvinism being the, the, dirty, the dirty word, all right? Um, but they don't ever actually teach the doctrines of grace from the pulpit. And I know this is true. I was in a discussion just last night and, you know, with, with Joseph, uh, I wasn't, it wasn't just me and Joseph, but he brought that to my attention, which he didn't need to because I had already thought about it, which is why I'm actually doing <laughs> this series is because there are a lot of reformed or reformedist churches or uh, Calvinistic churches that aren't actually reformed that believe their soteriology, their doctrine of salvation is Calvinistic, but you would never actually know it unless you went digging. Uh, you, maybe it's on their website, if, uh, but you're not going to hear it from the pulpit. And I'm not saying this is like some know-it-all or whatever, but my sneaky suspicion is that it is the fear of man that causes men who believe in the doctrines of grace to actually sidestep it every which way they possibly can. Uh, just because they're afraid of how people are going to respond to it. Um, because living in America, um, the, the, the largest belief system when it comes to the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, would be an Ar Arminian bent. Um, would be heavy on free will, uh, heavy on f uh, choice, um, heavy. I mean, it's, it's probably what all of us were, were, were raised in, actually. Um, and no one wants to upset the apple cart. And so nobody, and especially when you, we live in, a, again, an age where the whole point of church is just to grow the church, like in, in number, which I want to do. I want to be part of that for sure. Um, but I got to stand before God someday, and I don't want to try to find some uh, way to do that. I want to just be faithful to the word of God and declare the word of God and then let God build his church because that's what he does, and that's what he does good. Um, he does it well. Um, he's been doing it for 2,000 years. Nobody's stopping him. Satan's not stopping him. And so we then, knowing that, again, sovereignty of God stuff, we can just then faithfully proclaim what we really believe and let the chips fall where they may. Um, and so that's what my plan is to, to, to do um, with these doctrines of grace is just to remain faithful to the word of God 
and not get so wrapped up in the seeker sensitive or seeker sensitive. Yeah, I think it's seeker sensitive. I don't know why that sounds weird right now. Seeker sensitive movement, the church growth movement, where um, the main messages going out in the church gathered is not even to the church. It's to any unbelievers that might be sitting in the room. Uh, well, there's a problem. There, we're, we're a church. We're the people are a church. We're at a, a building that we call it, you know, church. I'm not going to get into that debate. I think that debate's stupid. Um, it's we're at church, and and you would think that since we're at church and with the people of God, the church, that the messages that would be proclaimed, the main audience would be who, the church. <laughs> but so many people fall for this thing where pastors and preachers were. Their main audience is the people that don't even want to be there and, and trying to convince them to stay or to come back, which is why all the messages have an evangelistic uh, uh, bent to them. I'm not maybe not even a bent, just it's just that's just what it is. Is hey, look how cool we are and look how nice we are, and look, there's coffee and donuts. Actually, I think we do have that stuff today. That's weird. We always have coffee. Um, our seats are comfortable, and we got this program and that program. I know I sound like a fuddy-duddy. I'm actually not a fuddy oh, I'm getting older, so maybe, but I'm not a fuddy-duddy. I just can't stand that stuff because it shows a lack of faith in God, who is the one that is building his church. And man is like saying, I could do a better job when they, get, when they think that the message for the gathered church has got to be for a bunch of people that don't even, aren't even part of the church. And so then the church goes, and I hate, I can't say this word, so somebody help me. I don't know why I can't say it. The church goes malnourished. Is that it? Yes, I, I always fail there. And so in, in Bible-believing, verse-by-verse, expository teaching, preaching, churches fall prey to this even. Because you, you can teach the Bible verse-by-verse verse and still have your main audience be unbelievers, number one. Number two, then, some, most pastors think they're preaching to a bunch of nominal Christians, you know, cultural Christianity. So even if they're even speaking to Christians, they're, they're speaking to Christians that they don't even know really are, maybe they're not even saved. And so they're, they're, and then there's this whole other group of people, actually the church, that doesn't ever get a word, ever. There's, no, there's nothing for them. There's this gospel presentation, which I'm telling you, is not, it's not actually the gospel, and I'll point that out in a second, to unbelievers. And then there's this other thread that is like, you're, you're I mean, are you even saved? <laughs> and then there's, and then there's this, the main thread that's actually missing is encouragement for weary pilgrims, just plodding through life, trying to grow in sanctification, trying to love the Lord and love other people more and more, trying to really rest in Christ, and they're, not, they're never even getting a word. And so, um, I know I'm bouncing around, but it's okay. It's just my introduction, okay? I can do that, all right? The gospel that is even going out to unbelievers sounds like this, and I'm telling you, this isn't even the gospel. You must be born again. And you're like, whoa, bro, 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 that's not the gospel? No, that's not the gospel. And that's what the vast majority, again, I can only speak for Americans, that's what they, they think that's the gospel, that you must be born again. And so a bunch of people, unbelievers, come to church, and they're told they need to get born again. And then they're like, well, how do I do that? And they're like, well, you need to believe. And once you believe, you get born again. It's like, wait a second. That's not how it works. That, 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 that's a clear contradictory of the very word of God. And so we think then that we've got to do something to then get born again. In essence, we're the ones that are birthing ourselves again. And the scriptures absolutely declare that that is, that is impossible. 
The gospel is you the gospel has nothing to do with what a person does. At zero. The gospel is what God does. It's what God has done. And so the doctrines of grace cover it beautifully because it lets you know who you are and your trespasses and sins. And then the rest of the points just simply declare what God has done. That's why, and this is a daring statement, maybe not in this crowd, people like Charles Spurgeon could say things that get people in trouble now that Calvinism is the gospel. That's it. And people are like, oh, don't, I'm a Calvinist, but don't say that. It's like, but it is. Once you get past total depravity, Calvinism is simply just telling you what God does and what God has done from eternity past in real time and then for, and then for the, the rest of the life of the believer. It's all about what God does. But in America, we're constantly hearing this whole, you need to be born again as if it's the gospel. We hear you must be born again as if it's something God will do to us if we only believe. Well, the truth of the scripture is that we can't believe unless we are first born again. Regeneration, this is the whole regeneration preceding faith truth. You must be born again first. This is what Jesus says to John. This is so simple if you just follow. Jesus says, you must be born again first to see enter the kingdom of God. It's not the other way around. We don't, we don't because we can't see and enter the kingdom of God and then get born again. And this is just simple reading comprehension. Jesus says, you must be born again to see, enter, believe the kingdom of God. And many people today are going to hear you must be born again, as in like, it's something they have to do. No, gospel isn't about anything you do. The gospel is simply about what God has done. And so you must be born again is a good place to start here on um, on total depravity because you must be born again is simply another way of saying that you are dead in your trespasses and sins and something needs to happen to you outside of yourself and that doesn't sound like good news to me and when you read psalm 14 and there we could have went to a plethora of of, of different places if you read psalm 14 and we'll see it. We'll see God's grace in Psalm 14 because it's hard. It, it's actually kind of easy to miss, kind of, until you see it. And then it's like, oh my gosh, that's right there in front of my face. It's a bad picture of man. Okay, and so man's condition. The bad news is to, to before we even get into uh, how depraved we are and total depravity, we know um, this is called the doctrine of original sin. Adam is, you know, the federal head of humanity. This is called imputed sin. You know, we get Christ's imputed righteousness. The reason we need his imputed righteousness is because as fallen human beings, we have Adam's imputed fallenness, imputed sin, okay? David declares, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. And Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. And then later, just in a few verses later, he says, through one trespass, again, through Adam, there is condemnation for everyone. Through one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. And so that's where we find ourselves. We're, we're before Christ. If, if Christ is not your Lord and Savior, you are, you're a sinner, all right? Born into sin. There's nothing you could do about it. It was ruined for you when Adam fell, all right? 
And then it's like, well, how depraved are we? Well, that's where we go, all right? Let's look at this, okay? And here's a good definition from one of my commentators on total depravity. Again, radical depravity is better um, because total depravity kind of can make you think that man can't do anything good. Man has fallen in Adam, absolutely. But man was created in the image of God, and even though that, that image has been severely marred, we still are created in the image of God. But it is marred, okay? And so, and this is a horrible illustration, but I'm horrible at illustrations, so here we go. For instance, we, we would think, like, Hitler is totally, was totally depraved. But as bad as Hitler was, it doesn't necessarily mean that when he got home from a day's of murdering people, that he then walks in the house and kicks his dog in the face, okay? So that would be like total depravity, where, where, which we know is not true. We see people that are the worst people. You hear about, oh, he was such a nice person, and then you find out that the next-door neighbor was killing people and burying him in his basement or something. That's gruesome. I don't know. Edit that out or something. Um, but but we, we, and we know unbelievers that are some of the nicest. We, you've heard the statement. I know a lot of unbelievers that are nicer and kinder than believers. Well, yeah. The image has been marred, but it's not totally ruined. We're not totally depraved, but we are radically depraved. And here's a good definition. Evil, at the, evil is at the very heart and root of man. It is at the very foundation, at the deepest level of human life. It darkens his mind, corrupts his feelings, warps his will, moves his affections in wrong directions, blinds his conscience, burdens his subconscious, afflicts his body. Man, Blinds, blinds, blinds. Here's the, this is so fascinating. The person that is in this condition, all right, before Christ, does not, doesn't even know they're in this condition. So you tell them this definition, and they don't even know what you're talking about because they're blind to it all. I mean, they, they can have a sense that something isn't right in the world, of course. They can have a sense that something isn't right in their own life, of course. They can have a sense of sin. Yes, they can have a sense of God when we talk about natural theology. But like when you're telling somebody that this is what total depravity is, heck, a lot of believers don't even agree with that definition. But the Bible does, and that's the most important thing. In Jeremiah 17, 9. So now we're just going to go, we're going to have a Bible study for a second, okay? This is what the Bible declares about man, all right? The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable who can understand it? That verse alone is total depravity on steroids. There's no reason to stick up for man in his fallen nature when the word of God says the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? All right. Now, look at what Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. We'll get into that later on. But no one no one can come to me. This is so important. So when we hear you must be born again, and then you read the rest of John 6, and, um, you know, because you had the debate, and Jesus is telling people to believe in him, and, and then we're like, so you're telling me. Jesus, Jesus says, I mean, the, uh, no one can come to me, all right? Jeremiah says the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? And yet we're, we're somehow we have this theology sometimes that we think that we actually can't. Well, the Bible declares all over the pages that we can't. But yet the Bible calls people who can't do the very thing they need to do to do the thing they need to do. And that, to us, doesn't just doesn't even seem right. It doesn't seem fair. All right? Because we have this ought to means can thinking. And 
It, it does sometimes. It probably should most of the time when you're trying to get your kids to do stuff. I mean, you want to challenge your kids, but you don't want to frustrate them, right? So you don't constantly put tasks before them that they ought to do, but you know they can't do, and then what? Punish them because they didn't do the thing you know they can't do? That's weird. Probably shouldn't do that, all right? But Jesus comes on the scene, tells people to believe and repent, and tells them they need to be born again, but he also tells them, which is showing them that they can't do it, tells them no one can come to me. And what you have with Jesus in John chapter 6 is him absolutely laying the axe to the fact that what we ought to do, we can do. John 6 is simply a beautiful, well, it's beautiful because God's grace ultimately, but it's, it's a succinct declaration of the very thing unbelievers need to do, they cannot do, and yet God calls them to do it. And then he tells them, you can't do it. Now, why would he do that? Why would he tell us what we need to do, but then tell us we can't do it? Because he's going to do it for his people. That's why. Because he's the Savior. Salvation is of the Lord. And then when we look back and we, and we realize the very thing I thought I did, actually God did that in me. See, then your hands fly up and your face hits the floor and you're like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. I thought I turned the light bulb on. I thought when I heard the gospel message, I just thought I finally figured it out. I, I just thought there's a bunch of people that, why didn't they figure it out? I figured it out. Why didn't they figure it out? But that's not how it is. God figures it out. And he tells us, do this. You can't do this. But guess what? I'm going to do it for you. All right? Uh, here we go. John 6. The spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. So total depravity. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? Above all else, nobody. No one can come to me. Come to me. No one can come to me. Why can't we come to Jesus? Because we're totally depraved. That's why. We don't want, we can't, because we can't give ourselves a new heart. Remember, if we could believe with our old heart, guess what? We wouldn't need a new heart, all right? We don't birth ourselves again. That's weird. We didn't do it the first time. We certainly don't do it the second time. It would be easier to birth yourself again and your, to birth yourself the first time, which sounds silly, doesn't it? Be impossible. Could you imagine somehow you physically birth yourself yourself? You could never do that. You know what? That would be much easier than birthing yourself again the second time spiritually. What's done spiritually is way harder than what's ever done physically. And so he says the spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted to you by the Father. Why? Because, again, we can't. We don't have the ability. We don't have the willpower to do this. But we also don't want to. Remember, we don't. Before Christ saves us, before we're regenerated, we don't have a desire, let alone the, the ability to do the very thing we're supposed to do. Uh, Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And I mean, people get all wrapped up in what, what does that mean? It just means you're dead. I mean, it, how you can't get stronger than this. I don't even like to use arguments necessarily for dead or then against dead here, because I used to use them against dead because, again, I used to not be a Calvinist. But, I mean, guys, but the Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Just leave it at that. We're, we're dead. A dead person can't do, what can a dead person do? They can't birth themselves again. They can't believe. They can't repent. They can't heed the calls to come to me and follow me. They can't, they can't do that. And, and here's, here's, here's another just perfect verse for, for that not only can not, can't do these things, 
but don't want to. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Well, I mean, that's what's going on. When an unbeliever hears the gospel, all right, as an unbeliever, the cross is foolishness. And then you're like, well, then why did that person believe? Oh, because it wasn't foolishness to them. Wait, what? But the Bible says that it's full. It is. It doesn't say that it's the word of the cross is foolishness to some of those that are perishing. It says to those that are, well, then why did it, why did it not then become foolishness for that person? Why did they believe? Because God. That's why. Which we'll get into that later. But the person without the spirit does not receive what comes from God's spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. So the, the, the person who um, is perishing, who doesn't have the spirit, they don't even understand the things of the spirit. So then why would we think that then somehow they can understand the greatest spiritual truth in the history of mankind, the gospel of Jesus Christ? They, they can't. Well, then why did they? Because God. Because God, that's why, all right? The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's unable to do so. Why? Because it's just a total depravity. We've inherited the fallenness of, 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 of Adam, Adam's sin. We were born into a fallen nature. We have no ability in our free will. doesn't mean we're robots. I hate that argument too. Everybody knows you're not a robot, all right? You're not a robot. Well, what about free will? Well, follow me. This is probably going to be bad too, but whatever. Free will. I, in my free will, I can go to here. That's what I can do. I'm, I, I'm here. I, I can... I can, I'm at this plane where I can make all these choices, good or bad. I can make good choices, but none of them pleasing to God at a salvific level, okay? Once we are born again, the lid gets blown off the top. Yeah. yeah. And then in your free will, not only can you do things pleasing to God, not only can you obey God, not only can you love God and others, you want to. It's pretty cool. So we have, we're tapped out as unbelievers in our free will. But when we are born again, the lid gets blown off, and then in our free will, guess what? We follow God. We love God. We believe in Jesus Christ. What then are we? To, what then are we? Are we better off? This is what he says in Romans chapter 3. This is taken directly from Psalm 14, all right? He paints a little worse of a picture, though. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. As it is written. Where? Psalm 14. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is, there is no one who seeks God. I, I'm flabbergasted that some people don't even know that that's parts in the Bible. Because again, in our Christian culture that we grow up in, all these, we're like, oh, that, that guy's seeking God. I can sense it. No, seeking God is the business of believers. Seeking, we're, it can look like someone's seeking God, an unbeliever, but they're not. They're seeking the benefits of God. Aquinas makes this great argument about that. They're, they're seeking the benefits of, the God and, of God, and there is a lot of benefits that come in believing or in, in knowing God. I mean, we see, we see the benefits. We, we want, like, uh, health. Well, who can give me health? God. I'm seeking God. No, you're not. You're seeking health. My marriage is falling apart. My wife left me. I'm seeking God. No, you're not. 
You think that if by showing up in church that God's going to then restore your marriage, you're not seeking God, you're seeking your wife or your spouse. And on and on and on it goes. I have financial difficulties. I'm seeking God. No, you're not. You're seeking, you're seeking money. I mean, it's clear. I mean, so we seek, it's the business of believers to seek God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good. No, not even one. And you're like, okay, that's good, Paul. Ugh, that's who I was. No, he, 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 he goes deep, man, he goes deep. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Notice, they, this is what they do. Not some of them. This is what they do. Vipers, venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth will be shut and the whole world becomes subject to God's judgment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Woo! Paul. I mean, just, he just, you're down and he just keeps beating you down. This is what his declaration, this is God's word's declaration on, on an unrepentant soul, on an unbeliever. All mankind. No one's seeking God. No one doing anything good. And then we're like, yeah, but they're, you know, they're not. That. And then he's like, open grave. And, and it's like, oh, my gosh. And it's exactly what Psalm 14 declares. God looks down and he sees none that are good, none that are seeking him. And it's a sad state of affairs. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. His answer, all have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even, no, not even one. And this is total depravity. This is why we can't do good. We don't want to do good, and, and we can't do good. And it's like, well, goodness gracious, that is bad news. Yes, but there is good news too. Notice here, okay? There is grace in Psalm 14. There has to be, and I'll show you. My people, notice these phrases, they consume my people. Wait a second. Wait a second. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. There's no one that seeks God. No one is good. No one is righteous. They consume my people. Who are these my people? Look at verse 5. Then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. What? How? What in the world? Where did that come from? And then look at the very end of uh, verse 7. When the Lord restores the fortune of his, his people, my people, his people, there's people where the Lord is their, their refuge. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Where'd those people come from? Oh, the grace of God. So you have total depravity, and then you have the glorious grace of God for those that are totally, totally depraved. The disciples say, who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible for man is possible with God. Praise the Lord. I, it, this is incredible. This picture of the depravity of man, 
the sinfulness of man, the evil of man, and no one, no one, no one, can't, 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 no one can do this, no one can do that, this, and they're not just not doing that, they're not at home sitting on the couch watching reruns of Seinfeld, the greatest show ever on TV, they're over here doing all sorts of evil deeds with their thoughts, with their minds, with their actions, with their heart, even the things they do good, they always have selfish motives, think about it. Even though innocent ones, I used to clean, love cleaning the house and doing the dishes before my mom got home. Why? So I could go get an eighth of weed. That's why. So I could get a $20 bill and go buy some weed. And then my buddy would be doing the same thing. He would get 20 bucks, and then we'd have weed and a case of beer. I mean, and, and our parents, I mean, I don't know. And it looked like we were doing good stuff. But even in the good stuff we did, we had these selfish motives. All right? Okay. So you have this bad scene, bad scene, bad, bad scene. Well, then what happens? How do these people, how are there people that are my people, that are righteous, that the Lord is their refuge, that are his people? Well, here we go. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will make you clean. I will clean you from all your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart woo, and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause, cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's all God. He does it. I will, I will, I will. All right, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world according to the rule over the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too, all, he includes himself, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, ah, oh, but God, but God is like the two greatest words in all of scripture. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who are having sex with other males, no thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, no verbally abusive people, swindlers. None of them will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you, sounds just like this picture, all right? And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God, not by themselves, but by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. For we, too, were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. But he saved us. God looks down sees this, but he saves us. That's why out of nowhere, he can talk about my people, those who are righteous and those who are, are um, taking refuge in the Lord, those who are his people. 
after declaring that the whole world is guilty before God, okay, Paul, quoting much of this psalm, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Man, that's a perfect summation of Psalm 14. That's a perfect summation of uh, total depravity and the glorious grace of God towards sinners. As we all have sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, but we are saved by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so what is the application for today? Well, there's a couple of things. And before we go do anything, which I don't even know if we're doing anything in today's application, we just need to know some stuff, all right? God sees everything. This is clear. He looks down. He sees it all. God knows everything. I mean, these are by very definition, these would define God. If God doesn't see everything, if he doesn't know everything, then he's not God. God sees and knows the hearts of man. And God will judge the wicked. They will be filled with dread. They will be filled with dread. That's what the word of God says. They will be filled with dread. But God has compassion and shows mercy to some. And they will be filled, look at the end, with joy and gratitude. They will be filled with joy. They will be glad. And it's that picture, that sprawl, if you've ever seen it, you know, where he puts the whole world in a circle on his little chalkboard. And he's like, okay, does everybody agree that all sin and fall short of the glory of God? That there is none righteous, no, not one, who's good. And so then if that is true, then what? The wages of sin is? Okay, so let's put all mankind in that circle, all right? That, that's justice, all right? Because there is no injustice with God. There is no, oh, God's not fair. God is fair. God is just. God is righteous, all right? God is merciful. Praise the Lord. So that whole group of people, that there's no injustice. They're going to hell. They're dead. They're, the wages of sin are dead. Spiritually going to be dead now. Spiritually going to be dead later, all right? But God in his great mercy and his great love and his great kindness and his great grace comes in and takes some of them out. See, now you have justice and mercy side by side, two circles. There is no injustice. And then people are like, well, then why didn't he do it all? I don't, why didn't he just get them all? I, I have no idea. I'm not God. And so it's silly to even, to even try to figure that out. Ultimately, all I know is there is no injustice. There is no unfairness with God. Um, people, if, if God was fair, guess what he would have done? Left us all in that big circle. But because God is merciful, he takes some out and shows mercy to them. All right? By God's great love and mercy and grace, we are his people. <laughs> the fool says in his heart, there is no God, but by God's great love and mercy and grace, guess what? We're no longer fools. The whole world's corrupt, but guess what? By God's grace and mercy, we're no longer corrupt. The whole world is full of a bunch of evildoers, night and day, nonstop. But guess what? By God's great grace and mercy, we're no longer evildoers who lack understanding. We've been made alive, given new hearts that now love God. By God's great love and mercy and grace, we have been made righteous. The whole world unrighteous before God. There is no, no one. And yet, by God's great mercy and grace and love, we have been made righteous. We have been given the righteousness of God. 
in Christ, inherited the sinfulness and the fallenness of Adam, but in Christ we receive his righteousness, an alien salvation, a salvation that is outside of ourselves. Uh, by God's great love and mercy and grace, the Lord is our refuge. This is all from Psalm 14. It's, it's the great reversal is what salvation is. He, God undoes all the things that man does. He undoes it all. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. By God's great love and mercy and grace, we call on the Lord. We seek the Lord. It's incredible. No, no one seeks God, and then here we are. We're a bunch of seekers. Why? By God's great love and mercy and grace. By God's great love and mercy and grace, he has delivered us, and he will deliver us. Has delivered us from sin and Satan and the world and from our own selves, and he will, is delivering us, and he will deliver us. By God's great love, mercy, and grace, we will not be filled with dread at his coming. All these people are going to be filled with dread, and yet we won't be. Why? Because of God's great love and mercy and grace. It's incredible. Ultimately, God saves sinners. And you have this corruption of man, this total depravity, this radical depravity, this born, you know, we don't, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We're, we're sin we're, we sin because we're sinners. That's why. And no one's seeking God. And, and, and again, we're not just on our couch not seeking God. We're cursing God. We're living contrary to his ways. And in our own thinking and in our own power, when the gospel is declared, and then it's like, and then the part comes where you do do something, which it's, again, it's just a response to what God has done. And most people just sit there with blank stares on their face. That's what we do because the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit. The natural man in their own power and strength doesn't want anything to do with God. They're the God. They're the captain of their own ship. They want to do whatever they want to do. And they want to blame it on everybody else. But God comes in and he saves that person. I once heard like the, and this is a weird, that it takes, Again, there's not some magical equation, but that the average person, before they come to Christ, has to hear the gospel 7.7 times. I don't know how you even figure that out, but that just shows you, even if that is true, that somewhere something happened. And I'm telling you what, the scriptures declare that that person didn't all of a sudden just figure it out. That God did something. God saves sinners. And so just have this psalm ends, oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion, and it has, <laughs> it did, it has for us, whom the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad, so let us be glad today, we come in, all different walks of life, all different weeks, up, down, everything in between, good, bad, ugly, and yet we get to just be reminded of the most important thing in the world, Eternal destiny. We get to get our eyes on eternal things and off the temporal things, as bad as the temporal things can be and as hard and painful as they can be. We just get to get our head out of water for a second. By the grace of God, we just get to lift our heads up and, and start thinking about the time when Jesus is coming for his people or, or we're going to die and, and, and we're coming to him. One way or the other, we're going to be with Jesus. One way, our redemption is nigh. One, one way or another, our deliverance has come, is coming, and will come. It's God. No one's stopping God. When God, you can come up, Elijah. When God, this is fascinating. When God looks down upon man, he sees and declares that none are good. But when he looks down upon the son of man, he declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And there's the reversal. 
Praise the Lord for Jesus. Christian, because you are in Christ, the beloved one, you now are a beloved one. You will not hear the words, get away from me, I never knew you. You will not hear sermons from this pulpit about Christians hearing these words. And in fact, I say, get away with me from me with your get away from me, I never knew you sermons. So get behind me. You know, the whole examine yourself. I just want to say, hey, preacher, examine yourself to see if you're preaching a bunch of examine yourself sermons every Sunday and stop doing that to Christians. That all these things are taken out of context. We will not hear, get away from me, I never knew you. We're in Christ. We're in the beloved. We're beloved because we're in the beloved. We will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, my whole life, I thought I had to do a bunch of stuff to hear that. Now, again, I'm not, we're not saying we don't do things. and we, I mean, we already did third use of the law today. We, we obey God's commands. We want to, and we do it. And when we fail, we repent. But guys, we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You want to know why? Because Christ heard, well done, good and faithful servant. And we're in Christ. And then that just frees you up then to be who you are in Christ. It frees you up to actually do the things that you thought you had to do to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because nobody wants to hear, get away from me, I never knew you. Dear Christian, you are not going to hear those words. You are not going to hear those words in Christ. And it's absolutely incredible to think about going from totally depraved to well done, good and faithful servant. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely mind-boggling to think about. And so I'll close with this, Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more than since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. This reconciliation. Totally depraved, God-hating sinners, totally reconciled to God, not by anything that they have done, but all through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely forgive. And here's the context. That's mercy of God. This is the context for this famous verse. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word, oh, the gospel that comes from my mouth, will not return to me empty, 
but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break forth into singing and the trees of the field will clap their hands. This is the Lord's declaration. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as heaven is higher than earth, so then my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you realize that in context that he's actually talking about something? Now, generally speaking, this is true about whatever you want to say about God, which is how it's always used. But in context, he's talking about mercy. God's mercy. And we see it on full display just in Psalm 14. We see it on full display in the doctrines of grace. When you find out who you are or who you used to be and then what God has done, you're just like, I, I, if you really sit with it, it's unbelievable to think about. It's unimaginable to think about. And then God says, yeah, my ways are not your ways. And not just all of his ways, which all of his ways are not your ways. And everything he does is past our understanding. God is incomprehensible. But when it comes to mercy, the context of this verse, that's what he's declaring. I am so merciful, you, don't even, you will never even comprehend the mercy. You can't out God's mercy. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We don't want to try to out your mercy. But certainly if we could, we would have. But praise God we couldn't. And praise God that you save sinners, like all of us in this room. And praise God that even right now, you're, you're, you're sanctifying your people. And praise God that we have this living hope that one day we are going to be glorified in your presence. Lord, thank you for pulling us out of the circle, Lord, of those that are destined for hell and didn't even care. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes and opening our ears and giving us new hearts and birthing us again. Thank you, Lord, for regenerating us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us faith. Lord, give us faith now. As weary pilgrims just passing through, Lord, we need encouragement. We need faith. We need to grow in trust and rest. And Lord, we want to, as Psalm 14 closed, we want to be glad. We want to be glad now. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.